0: You're listening to episode 14 of the Secret Origins Podcast, starring The Suicide Squad. Welcome to the Secret Origins Podcast, a review show dedicated to the Secret Origins comics published by DC in the 1980s. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and today I'm joined by Aaron Moss from the Head Speaks and Task Force X Podcasts. How are you, Aaron? Oh, I'm doing excellent, Ryan. And how are you doing today, my friend? I'm doing great, and thank you very much for being part of the show. Aaron is here with me to talk about Secret Origins, Issue 14. Secret Origins was an anthology series published by DC Comics, with each issue telling the origin of at least one hero or villain from the DC Universe. The series ran for 50 issues between January of 1986 and June of 1990, and also included three annuals and one special. All told, between the 54 comics with the Secret Origins banner, something like 120 stories were chronicled in the series a vast majority of which don't spotlight characters appearing in a movie next year. But issue 14 does. That's right. This issue tells the story of Deadpool. No, no, no. I mean the Suicide Squad. (laughs) So, Aaron, how did you become interested in the Suicide Squad? Actually, I've never heard of them before today. (laughs) So this is going to be an interesting take.
1: Yes, no. Um, actually, I I got started with in comics with GI Joe, and eventually I ended up going to the comic shop and picked up comics here and there till I was picking up almost every comic book out there. It seems, and around the early twenties uh, of Suicide Squad, I want to say twenty two or twenty four, I saw an issue of uh, Suicide Squad with Deadshot and Rick Flag and. Uh, a senator, or someone on the cover, and Deadshot and Rick Flagler were both taking aim at the guy, or something along those lines. It seemed interesting. It was DC. So I figured, you know, I'm a big DC family. Check this one out. So I picked that one up and read through that book. And I'm like, what? That was actually a really good story. I like that. Uh, so I went back and I started picking up the back issues here and there until I got the entire run. And again, from that point forward, I collected the entire Suicide Squad run. As I said on my podcast, the, uh, the way John Ostinger wrote The Suicide Squad, I mean he took second and third-rate villains, and he actually fleshed them out. He gave them actual – instead of just the guy who said to rob a bank, he actually gave them a backstory, gave them lives, gave them family, made, him, made you actually care for the characters. Mm-hmm. And another thing I like about The Suicide Squad is – I mean the name Suicide Squad. <laughs> People did actually live up to the title, and they did die in the book, which – for a medium where, you know, no one ever dies, I thought that was a refreshing change that, you know, characters actually did go on these missions, and then there was real stakes. I mean, you're not going to lose the Penguin or the Joker to one of these missions, but if you're a second or third stringer, you better watch your butt.
0: <laughs> <laughs> like you, uh, my first comics were G.I. Joe comics. Um, I did not get into Suicide Squad for a long time. In fact, it was really I, – I discovered it. Well, I'd heard about it for the longest time, but I didn't get into it until after I started reading Gail Simone's Secret Six around the mid-2000s. And I was just – I was always of the mind that I didn't like books or stories that focused on villains. And it was usually because they had to compromise the villains. They had to either make them – an anti-hero, they had to make him somehow sympathetic in order for you to feel the attachment and follow them. And I just I didn't like that. I wanted the villains to be pure. I wanted them to be bad and evil. So I had a hard time finding any appeal in in books about villains. But I tried Secret Six based purely on the strength of Gail Simone's writing with other books. And I found myself surprisingly really liking it, and really liking the character of Deadshot and his, you know, his connection to to Catman and these other characters. And it was just so referential, and Gail Simone talked so so lovingly about Suicide Squad that I was like, all right, I'll give this one a shot. Um, so I went back and I reread some of those early issues, and I had always liked Bronze Tiger just from one story, really, in like um. And like a a Batman anthology, like Tales of the Demon, uh, reprinted oh. an old Don Newton Batman book with um where Bronze Tiger knocks him out with like one kick. Um, <laughs> I always thought that the the one punch Batman versus Guy Gardner thing should have been revisited. Like anytime Bronze <laughs> Tiger walked in the room, they should have gone one kick, one kick. <laughs> just, just give Batman crap about it. Um, so I like Bronze Tiger. So I, he was sort of the thing that got me interested in the comic. And, I, you know, I, I went back and reread some of those back issues and found myself surprisingly really liking it, liking the character dynamics, liking, liking the good guys who I was supposed to like, you know, Rick Flag, Bronze Tiger, and just, you know, having that love-hate relationship with the people who were supposed to be hated. So, yeah, it was a testament to the writing that they really, they pulled it off. They made those villains nasty, but if not sympathetic, then at least entertaining.
1: Yeah, another thing we didn't, I didn't really mention is uh, along with John Ossinger's awesome uh, writing, uh, I enjoyed the, the artwork in it. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, it was mostly, for the most part, it was a darker title, but then again, why I normally like my superhero books more lighter and more superheroy, the art in this very much fit the the stories yeah. that they told.
0: Yeah, it it could embrace some of those darker tones.
1: Very much so. Yeah.
0: Okay, well uh, before we go any further just talking about our favorite suicide squad memories let's let's <laughs> kind of talk about what this book is, who these characters are. So I'll give a little bit of their publication history. This will be kind of abbreviated, and at the end of this, if I forget anything, just let me know.: We'll do. Uh, The Suicide Squad, also known as Task Force X, debuted in The Brave and the Bold issue 25. The squad's first adventure, called The Three Waves of Doom, was written by Robert Kaniger and drawn by Ross Andrew. That same creative team drew all of Suicide Squad's appearances in The Brave and the Bold, which it turns out was only like six issues, between 1959 and 1961. As originally conceived, the squad was comprised of military and civilian members who each suffered some type of trauma in their past. They volunteered for wildly dangerous missions from which no rational human being would expect to survive, hence Suicide Squad. Two decades later, the leader of the Suicide Squad, Captain Rick Flag, Jr., showed up with the other so-called Forgotten Heroes in a couple issues of Action Comics and DC Comics Presents. And that was about all for Task Force X and Rick Flagg before the crisis, but post-crisis was a different story. In the Legends miniseries event that started in 1986, we met Amanda Waller, the mastermind of the all-new, all-different Suicide Squad. The new team was made up, mostly, of captured supercriminals who agreed to undertake dangerous and frequently controversial missions for the U.S. government in exchange for a pardon. During Legends, the squad took on the fiery giant known as Brimstone. Their first mission tested more than their fighting capabilities, but also their trustworthiness, as Captain Boomerang betrayed the team at the first opportunity. Of course, Digger was recaptured and became a constant, and constantly treacherous, member of the team. And that's where this issue of Secret Origins picks up, between Legends and the Suicide Squad's ongoing series. Any big points that I forgot? No,
1: just... uh... Well, I say in their first mission during legends, uh, they did lose their title, and they did lose a team member, Brimstone, though he's not really a human, he, uh, brimstone or, or sorry not brimstone, Blockbuster, right <laughs> uh, died fighting brimstone. I knew Brimstone was involved. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Blockbuster, who was not mistaken, a big Batman villain, uh, he died fighting brimstone.
0: Yeah, so that, I mean that set the tone right away, that this was a team where casualties were expected. All right, well, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, the origin of the Suicide Squad, or possibly three Suicide Squads.
2: It lives. Master, it's night again beautiful, dark, silent night, with the fog creeping in. Time for you to awaken, Master. Time for you to go out. Something terrible has happened. You dared open the bar door. Believe me when I say that what you're doing places yourself and the rest of your party in the gravest danger. Inside lie monsters greater than your worst nightmares. They were all evil in life and remained evil after death. And now, the terror is loose upon the podcasting world. Again.
1: It's not in my power to help you.
2: You're the only one that understands. Nobody else in the world will believe me. This September and October. There to visit Supermates' estates. Walk the halls in this hall of horror, this abode of angst. Return to the house of Franklin Stein. Legends of classic horror spread their evil, but fear not, for your favorite heroes are here to challenge them. Do me a favor, Shaggy. Beware these masters of the macabre. Bella Lugosi.
0: Your fate is to be what you are, mine
2: is to be what I am. Lon Chaney Jr. There's a curse upon me. I change into a wolf. Christopher Lee. I am come unto thee, Osiris, who art cleansed of all impurities. Peter Cushing. Consequences? That sounds like a threat. And Ingrid Pitt. You must die. Everybody must die. Is Supermatescomic.blogspot.com production coming soon to an iTunes near you. Return to the house of Franklin Stein. They are just dying to greet you.
0: Secret Origins 14 was cover dated May 1987, but the on-sale date was February 12th, 1987. The cover is drawn by Luke McDonald with Dick Giordano inks. Uh, what do you think of the cover, Aaron?
1: I really like this cover. Um, it, it's split in half. One half of it showing the original Suicide Squad Task Force X team that you'd mentioned from back in the uh, Raven the Bold series. And then the other side of it shows our current, the uh, original members of the... John Ostrander Suicide Squad, I thought it was very dynamic. I, I really like I say I picked up the Secret Origins entire series, and when I saw this one, I just like, wow, this is a very nice cover. And again, it, on the cover, it's no, noted that this is a Legends spinoff, Chapter Twenty Two. So, I mean, this came out like a week or two after Legends finished, but it was still a part of the tie-in.
0: Yeah, they they sort of inside they refer to some of those events. Oh. Yeah. I like the split cover. I like the two different um, you know versions depicted. The soldiers fighting the in the war that time forgot. Yeah. I hated Jurassic World. I hated that movie, but I would love to see a War That Time Forgot uh, film with just like you know get the cast from the Thin Red Line or Saving Private Ryan and have them fight oh. T Rexes.
1: <laughs> that, that that would be nice. Oh
0: maybe, maybe they'll have that as a flashback in the Suicide Squad movie. I'm not holding my
1: breath, but you never know.
0: (laughs) Okay, then make that like an Easter egg at the very end. Okay, what is our next mission? We're going to Dinosaur Island. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that would be perfect. All right, well, you ready to talk about this issue? Yeah,
1: let's go ahead and uh, cover the actual issue. (laughs) Okay. Um, So this story was written by as I call him, the great John Ossinger. Penciler was Luke McDonnell, Inker Dave Hunt, the letter Albert de Guzman, the colorist was Carl Gafford, and the editor was Robert Greenberg. And I believe you mentioned the cover was done by Luke McDonnell and inked by Dick Giordano. And uh, this issue was reprinted along with the first, I believe, six issues of the Suicide Squad main title and a uh, trade paperback entitled Trial by Fire, which came out in 2011. So our story starts out with Sarge Still and Amanda Waller talking to President Reagan. Uh, Waller's trying to get him to continue the squad, and Still is trying to get him to disband it. He mentions how their cover is almost blown by, as I believe you mentioned earlier, Captain Boomerang uh, during the Legends crossover. Uh, Reagan is expressing his doubts about the squad due to bu- public opinion, and Waller prevents them with a file that contains the secret origin of the Suicide Squad. Uh, she tells how it got started in World War II on Dinosaur Island in an adventure called The War That Time Forgot. Sounds familiar. Oh. <laughs> Squad S called itself the Suicide Squad. Uh, it's where they sent the broken men, the annihilated, the borderline psychos. They're ready to fight themselves as the enemy. That's actually a line from the comic. I really liked that line. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the higher ups had Captain Richard Montgomery flag in charge of the uh, Suicide Squad. If Flight Squad was fighting the Japanese when they were all wiped out but Flag. On the intercom, he heard a faint voice saying, it's up to you, Rick. Carry on. Uh, this memory drives him on. He shows up at the barracks, uh, shows up to kick butt and chew bubblegum, and he was all out of bubblegum. Uh, Reagan makes a comment about how he's he's, he's sad that uh, the missions had to remain classified it was, as it would have made a great movie for him to star in. <laughs> uh, for the kids out there, uh, Ronald Reagan, one of our uh, ex-presidents, was a movie star before he was a president. <laughs> Win one for the <laughs> <Yeah>. dipper. <laughs> <laughs> That's enough ancient history. So the Suicide Squad, they fought together until the end of the war. Afterwards, uh, Flagg married a woman named Sharon Race. Then they go on mentioning about the disbanding of the Justice Society of America. Uh, this left a gap for Truman as most of the mystery men disappeared. When the government disapproved of them, they all disappeared. Uh, he realized how much that Americans depended on the heroes to help out. So he decided to put together a group called Task Force X. There was the civilian side, which was Argent. And the military side called uh, Suicide Squad, which was led by Jeb Stewart, who is uh, of the Haunted Tank fame. Uh, Absolutely. Men-
0: I, I couldn't think of where that character was from.
1: <laughs> he mentions that he had some boys in Korea called the Suicide Squad. So this officially formed Task Force X. Uh, both Argent and the squad was successful in their missions. Then around 1960, Argent vanished. Uh, no one knows if the guy that was in charge of it died, quit, got fired, or what's going on. He just vanished. Around the time the Task Force X was formed, Richard Roger Flagg was born, and he's the man we mentioned earlier. The now Colonel Flagg tried to install the same values in his son, courage, duty, and sacrifice. Uh, When little Ricky was eight, he was almost hit by a car on an icy road, but his mom pushed him out of the way, getting hit herself. A few years later, his daddy, Colonel Flagg, sacrificed himself to stop something called the War Will that was left over from World War II. As he dive-bombed the war wheel, he told his squad mates to tell his son to carry on for him. We then see young Rick Flagg standing over his father's grave, saying he'll carry on. Rick went to live with his grandfather, or I'm sorry, his godfather, Jeb Stewart. He went to military school, flight school. He was a top test pilot. His only competition was Ace
0: Morgan. Listeners Uh, might remember that name from back in Episode 12. uh, Rick was then
1: accepted into astronaut training, where he met Karen Grace. One of his co-astronauts had told him the story of how Karen was a nurse, and her plane went down, and her boyfriend died. He sacrificed himself because he didn't want to drag her down. Uh, the two ended up started dating. They fell in love. Then Rick got a notice about the squad being reactivated. Uh, Karen decided to go along with them. With RJ gone, they combined both groups into Mission X. Uh, there was Flag, Karen Grace, and the two other gentlemen, Jess Bright and Dr. Hugh Evans, though in this issue... They refer to Jess as Jeff. Just a little note there, but I believe his name was actually Jess Bright. But yeah, most of the time they called him Jeff in here. Uh, Mission X went public to help with their funding. They fought mostly uh, monsters, dinosaurs, aliens. Uh, both Bright and Evans also fell in love with Karen. Rick told Karen that you know they can't tell them the men that they're together. And then we get the backstory about Bright and Evan, both of them going to a nuclear bomb shelter. Uh, they were late, and as they're pulling up, the bomb shelter is exploding. And they see their friends die. And they hear their friends telling them that they must carry on for them, which is a reoccurring theme in these original <laughs> Task Force X comics. But we'll get into that. Uh, they go through more missions until the final one in Cambodia, where they come across a yeti. The yeti knocks Rick out, and Karen informs the other men that she loves him. When suddenly the ground opens and swallows them, they find themselves in a temple made of gold. Uh, this is around Action Comics 552. They talk about this. Right and Evans get upset that Rick and Karen was keeping the secret from them about their love for each other. They feel betrayed, and they said as soon as they get back, they're done with the team. As they trek out, they have to cross a thin ice bridge. As they get ready right to across, uh, the Yeti shows back up. Uh, Evans and uh, Jess, or Jeff, hold back the Yeti, and they tell Rick that he needs to get Karen to safety for the good of the team. Karen said that she doesn't want anyone to sacrifice themselves, so Rick knocks her out and carries her across the bridge, which collapses. Rick jumps the rest of the way, saving them both. Meanwhile, Hugh and Jess and the Yeti fall to their death over the edge. With their friends dying, Karen has a mental breakdown. Rick reports back to his uh, godfather about the mission and was told that, well, due to budget cuts, the team's being disbanded anyway, so it's a good thing they're all dead. Uh, Rick is then teamed up with the Forgotten Heroes that you mentioned, which consisted of Animal Man, Dolphin, who is hot, Cave Carson, the Mortal Man, Congo Bill, Congorilla, and Dane Dorrance to look for information on the temples that the squad had found earlier. Uh, he stayed with that team until they disbanded during the crisis with the death of the Mortal Man. Uh, You check in on Karen. The doctor said he would get a lot better if he didn't come around. About this time, Waller pulled him into the new Suicide Squad. And that's where the original team story ends, and Waller decides to give Reagan another file, which contains her life story. So we find out about Amanda Waller. Uh, She was born Amanda Blake and raised in uh, Cabernet Green, Chicago. When she was 18, she married a man named Joseph Waller, who was 20. Uh, They ended up having five kids together. Uh, she mentions to Reagan that at the time there were social programs to fall back on. Uh, there was a lot of drugs and gangs where they lived. Her oldest son, Joe Jr., was a basketball player that ended up getting killed because he wouldn't give in to the punks and wouldn't give in to the drugs and the gangs. Uh, her oldest daughter, Demita, was killed and possibly raped by some scumbag named Candyman, which shows you that he's not a great guy to begin with. <laughs> she mentions that they had to have a closed coffin as badly as she was messed up. The cops said they know who did it. Without any witnesses, there wasn't a thing they could do about it. So, Joe Waller went out to clean the streets. He went out to uh, get the Candyman, and while he did kill the guy, he was also gunned down himself. On her husband's grave, Amanda swore that the streets weren't going to take any more of her family. So she got her babies through college, and then she went through college herself and started working for a man running for Congress called Marvin Collins as his campaign manager. She got him elected, and while doing some research, she found out about the original Suicide Squad, uh, the files that she gave Reagan earlier. Uh, Amanda tells Reagan that there are certain jobs that the government can't do. So why not use supervillains and then give them time off their sentence for doing these deadly jobs? Uh, She says there was enough interest for a pilot program, which refers back to Legends' uh, six-issue miniseries. Sarge still reminds us that as soon as she let Boomerang go, he almost blabbed everything he knew. Next time, they may not be so lucky. Waller said that the prisoners have gotten time off for helping on research projects before, so why is this any different? And Reagan says that he's willing to give her a chance. After she leaves, he tells Still that Waller was too effective for Congressman Collins. Was her otherwise occupied with her Suicide Squad? Maybe he gets some of his problem programs passed. Waller then goes out and tells Flagg that she got the president's approval, and they go off to start the Suicide Squad, which came out two weeks after this issue. That sums it up. First thoughts on the story? the first part of the story the uh, as I've mentioned on a couple issues of my uh, or episodes of my task force X podcast the, the first part of the story I, I'm not crazy about uh, the first six issues they did of the uh, original 1950s 1960s mm-hmm. uh, task force s suicide squad again John took what was there and he basically retold it in a modern context tried to piece it all together yeah I, I wasn't very happy with those stories and again I've been on mine, I've been reviewing them here and there just because it's it's very Golden Age written. Mm-hmm. Let me <laughs> let me put it nicely. It was very Golden Age written. Mm-hmm. I mean, overall, I enjoyed the issue. It gave you backstory on Amanda Waller it let you know where she came from and, and gave you what's going on with her. Yeah, and I did like that they did work in because these are the uh, his father's stories, the the War Wheel and Dinosaur Island and all that. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think that was a part of the Suicide Squad. They just kind of fit that in, I believe.
0: Yeah, I actually, I really liked that they made that connection. It wasn't necessary, but I liked putting it back even a further generation of including them yes. in, in World War II with some of those, like, star-spangled comics and weird war stories of, of yeah, having I them. It to
1: find out. Yeah, it looked like these were mainly in star-spangled war stories from yeah. issues 110 through 128.
0: Was- yeah, yeah.
1: About a dozen issues in there. They covered the stories.
0: Yeah, that's kind of like what I mentioned. It's it's sort of the, the origin of Suicide Squad. It's also the origin of or the stories of three people, Rick Flag, his father, and Amanda. Um, yes. And I agree. I, I kind of think that middle chunk when it's talking about the original Task Force X and, and their stories in The Brave and the Bold, that's probably the weakest part just because th- those stories were so kind of weird. I mean – They were written by Robert Kaniger, who's crazy.
1: (laughs) Is that what the problem was? I I was wondering about that. Well, my my main problem with those stories is they they beat you over the head with the whole – for one, it's kind of weird that all four of the characters uh, of the original Suicide Squad, when their friends or whoever dies, they hear phantom voices telling them to carry on. Mm Mm-hmm. That, and then the whole love thing with uh, Rick and Karen, but our love cannot be told to anyone else because it'll ruin the team. I got tired of that real quick.
0: So, uh, if I'm right, John Ostrander created Rick Flag's father for this story. Like, he hadn't appeared
1: in... I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure if he showed up in those Star-Spangled War stories. Because, I I mean, a lot of this this stuff that they're referring to came from the Star-Spangled War stories comics. Right. So I, I'm not sure if there was some sort of Richard Flagg or Montgomery Flagg in flag. those stories or Colonel Flagg yeah. flag that showed up in there. Yeah, I'm not quite sure on that because right. I know that a lot of these stories that they did mention, uh, they were in the actual comics from back in you know, the 50s, I believe it was.
0: If one of our listeners has the Showcase Presents The War That Time Forgot volume – or you're of a particular age, go back to those comics and tell us if Rick Flagg's father was ever an actual character in those books. Because one of the things that jumped out about I me, and the reason I brought that up, was Rick Flagg's father marries a woman named Sharon Race. Yes. And Rick Flagg Jr. falls in love with a woman named Karen Grace. Yeah. <laughs>
1: That's why I, I'm wondering if those stories were actually there, and then when, uh, what was it, Robert Kaniger I don't know who wrote those Star-Spangled War stories, but I don't know if maybe when uh, Robert Kaniger wrote these uh, early Task Force X stories, if he pulled on that and said, you know what? There was you know mm-hmm. Sharon Race there. Let's go ahead and name her Karen Grace.
0: Or I was wondering if that was something that John Ostrander did to make it – if he was basically taking the same character and splitting her in half.
1: Right. Um, I
0: don't know. Yeah, I'd be
1: curious to know about that because, yeah, I mean – I would like to give John more credit than that because, mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, all the stories I've read from him, you know, he's he, a very talented writer. I could see him actually creating a new character for if, if he was actually doing it. That's one reason I'm thinking maybe that those characters were actually there just in a different form. He just, he just co-opted them or whatever and, and included them in this story.
0: One of my favorite parts of this issue is the fact that Ronald Reagan is so tickled by the stories of the Suicide Squad, and he thinks that would have been a great movie, and he wishes he could have played the part.
1: Yes, I, I really liked that. I've got a note about that here. I really liked that. It was very much Ronald Reagan. Yeah. <laughs> and on the page before that, when, uh, as I mentioned, Richard Flagg, it came in, and uh, he took control of the Suicide Squad.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: One of the guys, Dashful Benji, was, you know – trying to show off and kicking back and I like how uh, flag came in, kicked the guy's chair over and guys like, yeah, you're not so tough with those bars on you. He's like, Oh yeah. So he ripped them off and Ben started beating on him and Richard flags. Oh yeah. And just beat the living heck out of the guy. <laughs> I, I really like they Came in kind of pet people in their place and, you know, told them I'm not betting with your BS. <laughs> I, I get, I did get a kick out of that part. And then as we, I, you mentioned earlier, uh, Jeb Stewart, uh, he mm-hmm. was from the haunted tank. Again, I don't know how closely, if any, he was tied in to those Star-Spangled War stories. I haven't read a lot of the Haunted Tank stories. I just know of them because, again, that was before my time. I just know them from some back issues like of Batman Crossing Over and a few other stories here and there. So I'm not sure how closely this mirrors anything that actually happened, but I like the way that they worked him in.
0: What did you think of the art in like the first couple sections when it's like the the first section, like the first six pages, when it's talking about the the World War Two heroes? I
1: liked it. I, I thought it was appropriate for the time. I, I I could see them trying to you know invoke those old stories.
0: What actually struck I mean, me when I w- when I was reading it, especially the art in these pages, right? And I know be- because you're a fan, it really McDonald's art on some of these characters really reminds me of the first couple of years of G.I. Joe that were drawn by either Herb Trimpey or Mike Vosberg.
1: You know, I didn't think about that, but you're, you're looking at that you're right.
0: Like J like when they're like when a Flag first comes into the, the barracks and he starts right. fighting uh what's his name? Bashful. Bashful Benji. Yeah
1: <laughs> Yeah no I'm looking at that right now and yeah you are right. That is very Herb Trimpe, very G. I Joe ish.
0: Yeah. So because of that, I liked it.
1: <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I didn't even think about that until you mentioned, it, but no, that, that's an additional, very war war comic like, mm-hmm. which is GI Joe. Yeah.
0: Page seven, the Justice Society of America on trial. Yes, there is an inclusion of Wonder Woman among this group. Yes, there is. <laughs> which,
1: <laughs> which, at, which is correct because she was originally there. But due to pr- the
0: crisis, then, not so much. Then she right. So at that point, she would have been taken out of this, and yeah, because Tara's then reestablished that she didn't come to Man's World until the time of Legends, basically. And, and
1: but actually, this is still
0: correct because you know wrong <laughs> because years later, John Byrne years did, later did, did his reboot or his retcon. Where he made Hippolyta go back in time and be the Wonder Woman of World War II era, of the Justice Society era, which completely negated Roy Thomas's need to create a Golden Age Fury, which we talked about in episode 12, and then the Young All Stars concept as a whole. So, in hindsight,
1: while this this page is wrong, it's correct. Yes. Uh, So that's – see, when those Wonder Woman stories came out and John Byrne sent her back into the past, I'm like, that's stupid. But now it makes perfect sense and I have actually – it rechanges everything. I like it now, so. Yeah. (laughs) But I did have that note here about, yeah, Wonder Woman shouldn't be there in post-crisis. DC
0: Comics, we've made a retcon that completely invalidates something. (laughs) Give us a couple months. We'll do another retcon that fixes it. (laughs)
1: So I don't know if this is something John Oshinger wrote her in there, or if this is just something that Luke McDonald knew that she was a member and, and didn't realize.
0: Yeah, he might have just said, look at some of the art from the trial of the JSA or from whatever old – I don't remember what issue that story specifically came from.
1: That's what I was trying to remember. I was thinking it? it was like uh, America versus the Justice Society, but that's
0: but there, not it. There, no, there was a story before that. Paul Levitz wrote it, an issue of like Adventure Comics or something, and I can't remember what it was now. See, I remember
1: at one time I read this comic where they they did have the you know, the JSA disbanded mm-hmm. and vanished. I remember actually reading that comic, but I yeah, I can't remember now for the life of me where that was at.
0: I, everybody who's listening to this is typing into the comments section, you morons, right. it was this this, this. So. <laughs> You should know this.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well that's what we have the internet for to let us know where we're wrong. <laughs> of course. <laughs> But anyways, enough of the uh just society and the Wonder Woman that's there but not there and shouldn't be there.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um I have a comment that's just war wheel all caps and a lot of exclamation points.
1: <laughs> yeah. Is it, I, I'll is, agree it with t- that.
0: is it too much to hope we we get the war wheel in the Suicide Squad movie? <laughs> Again, I would not
1: hold your breath. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs>
0: Yeah, no, there's good stuff that we're talking about that we want
1: to see. You're not going to see it, I'm pretty <laughs> sure. <laughs> Crap. <laughs> but uh, I do like how uh, Truman Brigg, You know, he he does set up the, the new Task Force X and actually gives mm-hmm. us a little bit about. We have the Suicide Squad on one side and Argent on the other side.
0: I mean, this. John Ostrander is really going out of his way to pretty much reference every non-superhero comic or story yeah. from from DC's like, long history after this. I mean, he talks about those old weird war stories and the Star-Spangled War stories.
1: Right, he, trying he's, to throw everything into continuity.
0: Right, I mean, with the war story, he's talking about the Blackhawks. Um, He introduces this friendship between Rick Flagg and Ace Morgan from the Challengers of the Unknown. Later on, he talks about uh, Rick's time with the Forgotten Heroes, which included, like, guys from, like, the Sea Devils and Cave Carson and all of these, like, obscure characters that, like, pretty pretty much everybody who didn't wear a cape or have a superpower gets this connection.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And while sometimes that annoys me when writers try to include everything, I kind of like... Again, I don't know if it's just my prejudice for John Ossender or not, but I like the way he included all that in here and kind of tried to make a lot of these uh, pre-crisis stories fit into current continuity.
0: Yeah, I do too. I, and I think this this story is about legacy. Uh, Very much so. And it's, so in that case, it works. It's like a little mini-companion to the history of the DC universe that Wolfman and Perez were doing.
1: Yes. Um, and, and real quick, don't get your hope-ups that the
0: movie's going to have anything about legacy in it. <laughs> <laughs> you t- you're You're breaking my heart, man. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I like the little friendship between Rick Flagg and Ace Morgan in Darwin Cook's new frontier. He borrowed this idea except he, he swapped out Rick Flagg for Hal Jordan, but he made them kind of competitive rivals or friendly rivals as flying buddies right so that's I think that's all the notes I had up until we get to Amanda Waller's section.
1: Uh, Yeah, that pretty much – like I said, I can't really comment on the – again, this was all in the first half or the first third. Mm -hmm. The second third, yeah. I like that John – he referenced those. There were six issues of the uh, Brave and the Bold where the Suicide Squad showed up. Mm -hmm. I I like that he referenced them, but again, we can quickly move through those because, again, as I said, those six issues was just a slug for me to get through and trying to read them. Yeah.
0: When we see their story when they're up in, like, the Himalayas or whatever, and they're attacked by the Yeti, and they find the Temple of Gold, and right. it, we get the little editor's note, as seen in Action Comics 552. I went back and I found that issue because it's in um, the Adventures of Superman by Gil Kane collection. Oh, okay. And Rick tells the story, but he basically just says, we found this temple of gold. Yeah. And two days later, we left, and the team was disbanded. It's like, yeah, it was a flashback, and yeah. very quickly told, yeah. It's like, um, he didn't mention two of the guys died.
1: <laughs> I think that's, yes, I don't know. Where, I'm not quite sure where that showed up at. Because I, I actually have uh, the 552, and where that story was continued at. I uh, I used to have them at one time, when I, before I got into comics. Mm-hmm. A buddy of mine gave me a, a big old box of mostly DC, and actually a couple of the comics in there was the, this, this actual storyline with the Forgotten Heroes. Yeah. So I, when I saw that, I actually kind of liked it. And,
0: yeah, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if this was just a total retcon on Ostrander's part, just saying, I mean, just keeping up the tradition that people die on these missions. Right. Um, well, I'm and, sure it and is. He, he, had no, he had no more use for you, Evans, and Jeff's uh, Jeff Sprite.
1: Since Action Comics is very... Or frugal with information on that, as you said. Yeah, they showed up, they left. He's like, let's go ahead and give it a little bit more information.
0: <laughs> Two physicists killed by a yeti. That's
1: yeah, that does need to be mentioned. All right. And like I, said, I don't know if any of this other stuff showed up anywhere else about you know like say the, about them dying finding the yeti and about them carrying on. And again, while it did get annoying, I did like the fact that he included the whole carry on thing. Mm-hmm. Because in this time frame, that was a big, as said, legacy and carrying on for the dead. So, yeah, while it did get annoying, I did like that he included that in here to kind of keep it in continuity, if you will.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, Once we get to uh, Amanda's story, some of the uh, geographic and cultural notes are pretty spot on. My parents are from Chicago. Um, I had family that grew up in Cabrini Green, that area, not for very long because (laughs) – by the late 60s, early 70s, um, the, the crime and the drugs and the gangs were just getting too much for them, so they got the heck out of there. Well, oh, um, that'd be about
1: the time frame that Amanda grew up there, too. So. Right, right. That's
0: sort of what she's talking about. The The story, I mean, talk about a tragic story. Like, her kids <sighs> and her husband, like, two of her kids. Like, the first one, her son, star athlete, stayed on the straight and narrow, avoids drugs, avoids the gangs, but can't escape them forever, and he's he's killed that way um it reminded me of part of the movie Boys in the Hood. Yeah, when Richie's shot down in the alley, the story of her daughter, this horrible things that happened to her daughter. There's a note, um she screamed but people just closed their windows. It took 15 minutes to stop her screaming. We kept the coffin closed when we buried her. I think this is Ostrander sort of referencing a famous murder in the 60s from New York. It was um a woman named Kitty Genovese who like a famous thing was like assaulted in the courtyard of her apartment and everybody was home and everybody watched and nobody did anything. And it led to this, this huge sort of psychological uh, like study of what they, they called sort of the bystander effect. Uh, And this idea that if like, if people are really like shocked and traumatized by what they're witnessing, if they think somebody else will solve the problem, they'll defer to that so it's like if everybody's watching this nobody nobody does anything because they they shift the blame to somebody else they're like well why didn't they call the police right Um,
1: and and as you're mentioning I mean the sad part about this part of the story is that while it's it's, it is a comic these are you know not actual people mm -hmm. the premise behind this is actually all too real even oh yeah 2015 it's still you know someone's getting hurt a lot of people would rather you know act like nothing happened or you know they don't see nothing instead of getting involved right right so that that's the sad part about it is that it's still so you know true right. even today right
0: and especially i mean the the amount of and maybe it's just how public it's getting with the social media but the amount of of violence against the black community uh, particularly by cops in yeah. in the last year it's insane I, and that that could be me walking around with blinders and this is just the first time i'm seeing it i'm sure that is but it's it, well
1: like a lot, of, a lot of people say the world's worse off now than when it was 20 years ago a lot more violence a lot more school shootings this and that mm-hmm. i don't think that's particularly true i think a lot of it's just we hit with the social media with before when you know when we were growing up to hear about something you know even local you have to wait for the you know the local news at night or the paper that week or whenever you got it. Yeah. Whereas yeah. today, something happens it's as instant. soon as it's happening, even before it's done happening, mm-hmm. it's on YouTube, it's on Facebook, it's you know,
0: and but it's also we're able to see it ourselves. Yes. Because everybody's got a camera. Yes. Um, we we have access to dashboard cameras for from like every time the cops pull somebody over.
1: So, yeah, Uh, I don't think the world's any worse. It's just that we can hear more of it Mm -hmm. at a quicker and more visual pace than we used to in the past.
0: Yeah. Anyway, let's get back to a happier subject. Suicide (laughs) Squad. (laughs) Oh, great. (laughs) Um, It really strikes home, though, like with this character, how this is why I love Amanda Waller, because she is so unlike everything else that was in comics.
1: Very much Uh, so.
0: They make a point of saying her kids graduate college before she does. And that's really – when her story begins, when we meet her, when we start to see her be a a presence, she's got to be in her 50s. She's a large black middle-aged woman. Yeah, at least her –
1: at least mid to late 40s at the youngest, yes. I agree. Uh,
0: Yeah, yeah, because it's – like – I think she had five kids, and it looks like – I mean they they weren't all born at the same time based on like the the family photos. So I mean if she was married and had – started having kids when she was 20. Yeah. So that's just – it's fascinating, and it's it's something that we don't see in comics now. Right. Well, that's one thing I – not to
1: harp on – Things I've griped about before, but I'm going to gripe about it again. Uh, that's one thing I don't like about when they redid the Suicide Squad with the New 52 and mm-hmm. with uh, showing up in Arrow and Green Lantern. Mm-hmm. Amanda Waller the younger, more attractive, thinner woman. Yeah, And while I'm the last person – OK, maybe Shag <laughs> is, but after, before Shag, I'm the you know, next to the last person to complain about. Having a hot chick on the comics or TV, mm-hmm. even though Shag thinks Amanda's hot because he thinks all women are, Amanda Waller's not that woman, right? And to me, it kind of detracts from her a little bit, making her some hunt young hot girl. Because mm-hmm. when she's young and hot, well, did she get where she's at by her her talent or other talents? Right. Whereas the Wall, I mean, there's a reason they call her the Wall. Yes. Not only is her mentality, you know, like that, but she's got the body of a wall. Yes. Which
0: and that, I think – that is where her power comes from.
1: Yes. You know that she didn't get where she's at by sleeping around or by, you know, flashing a pretty smile. She got where she's at through her determination, her willpower, her just do not mess with me attitude. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that's one of my big complaints about the new 52 and the way Amanda's been shown in the current movies or TV shows and everything mm-hmm. is that, yeah, they are making her younger, and I, I don't like that. I, I like this Amanda Waller we're seeing here. Yeah. This is my Amanda Waller. I think it detracts quite a bit from her, her character by de-aging her and making – you know,
0: mm-hmm.
1: pinning her on both our weight loss. And by making <laughs>
0: her look like every other woman in these comics, by making her yes. look like she could be a superhero. Yes, here
1: she she was decided. You saw the wall; you knew who you were looking at. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. So ah. <laughs> frustrating. Yeah. Anyways, anyway.
1: yeah, that's that's one of been one of my biggest complaints. I, I've been moaning about that since the new Fifty Two started, and actually, I think it was even before that. I Green Lantern came out before that, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think when she showed up in, if I'm not mistaken, Smallville, she was.
0: No, I uh, think Smallville did which... her right because I think Pam Greer played her. Maybe it was, and Pam Greer at that point in her career was looking a little bit more long in the tooth, and yeah, a
1: little raggedy. had had a, had a bit more <laughs> size. Um, so maybe it was the Green Lantern film, the first time that she started showing up,
0: and then Arrow on Arrow. Yeah, that's yeah. well, that, I mean, that's the CW network. There is a lot about their shows that I that I like and that I, I I champion, but their casting decisions, their their target demographic is looking for a specific type of person. Yes. That's, that's why all of their men and women look the exact same.
1: Yeah. But I do like that they show, you know, her after, you know, after she got through college, mm-hmm. married her babies, got through college, she actually hit the campaign trail, and she, it shows that she's a hard worker through some mm-hmm. montage. She got this guy elected.
0: She's not an idealist. She is much more of a realist. and she's, Oh, much so. She's willing to make hard, compromised decisions in order to make the world better in her viewpoint. And she right. she pretty much she says that to the candidate that she's trying to get a job with. And you yeah. just you just take that to the next level and the next level and the next level, and then you get her in a room with the devil himself, President Reagan. <laughs>
1: <laughs> anyway.
0: <laughs> but,
1: but yeah, along those lines, I, I'm going to read this dialogue real quick. Yeah. I, I really like this. When she meets Marv Collins, she's like, I read some of your position papers, like what you, the folks around here need. Also, I think you don't stand a prayer getting there. You don't have machine backing. And he's like, I don't want it. She's like, that's one of the reasons I like you. You know what things should be, but you got no sense how things should go. Me, I got a bright new poli sci degree, and I know the streets. And I think together we can get you elected. She's just very, like you said, straightforward, and very much, you know, here's the facts. Mm-hmm. If you don't like it, tough. You know, this is the way it's going to be. <laughs>
0: right. And it also shows. I mean, she's she's not campaigning for herself she's not the one on the ticket she said let me do this for you she's willing to be the manipulator she's wi- willing to be the schemer so that other people look good
1: the power behind the throne if you will
0: absolutely absolutely she's yeah it's uh, half of the story is her origin and it's great
1: because i i enjoyed the first part but as i've said before if if that was the comic I picked up when I picked up Suicide Squad, I probably wouldn't be doing a Suicide Squad uh, Task Force X podcast today. But this is the kind of stuff that I, I picked up, and this is the stuff I enjoyed. Yeah. And then they do mention – like we talked about earlier, they mentioned the uh, whole uh, Legends debacle, if you will, <laughs> when they're relating it. The, again, another footnote here telling us it's see Legends 3. These things, in recent years, are rare to find actual reference to an older comic.
0: but (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we see. They take out Brimstone. Brimstone kills Blockbuster. Boomerang betrays them.
1: (laughs) Which is very much, as we come to find out, is very much Captain Boomerang.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Boy, Carmine Infantino could design some ridiculous costumes. Few people could draw those costumes and make them look good. But I think Luke McDonald's take on Captain Boomerang is actually pretty good. Oh,
1: yeah, no, he's – I was just looking at a picture of Captain Boomerang here, and yeah, it's, it's, he did a fantastic job. Yeah, because Captain Boomerang can look kind of silly, mm-hmm. but yeah, the way Luke McDonald draws him is just fantastic. Yeah. And I like the fact that, you know, Reagan – not that, you know, he's throwing stones at anybody, but yeah, Reagan lets her do the Suicide Squad – Basically just to keep her out of him his heir.
0: Yeah. I think Ostrander had some ideas about the president at the time.
1: Yeah, no, I I'm friends with him on Facebook <laughs> and so I've seen some of his posts. So yeah, I, I can kinda guess where his political leanings lie and a lot of times, Although, a lot of people try to you know read into a writer's motives or whatever mm-hmm. through their story, and I try not to do that because well, again, he's writing a story; he may you know, but <laughs>
0: and what I what I appreciate is he's not taking cheap shots; he's not making him look stupid; he's not painting no, the not president. At all. I mean, whatever he believes about the president's policies, he's not making him look foolish. No, not um, at all. He he seems to be pretty on his game. He he's a little bit crass and like thinking, like looking at stories of dead, you know, the the Suicide Squad and thinking what a good movie that would have been. And I mean, he's he's a politician. He's playing the game. Amanda Waller is trying to play him. He'll play her back. And I think right. I think it's actually it's a pretty good characterization.
1: And that's one thing. It's one thing I liked about John Ostinger's writing on this. Is yeah, he he wrote
0: he wrote actual
1: characters and he actually you know made them true to life. Gave him true motivations and true
0: feelings, if you will. Uh, did you have any other thoughts on this story?
1: No, just, uh, like i say overall, I enjoyed it. I liked it. the very last panel here. It tells, you know, there's when well, there's no other choice, there's still the Suicide Squad. Mm-hmm. And it's like, close enough for government work, let's catch a plane, I'll show you a new home. <laughs> coming in two weeks. Suicide Squad, number one.
0: This was another good example of when Secret Origins used the format to springboard into a new series. Um, yes. They they did it with Blue Beetle. They did it here with Suicide Squad. Um, with a lot of their books, if fans liked the characters, they had nowhere else to go except back issue diving for some of these characters. Do you have a particular favorite character or characters from Suicide Squad?
1: Yeah, I, I like. Well, as, as I've mentioned, Amanda Waller. I love her. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Amanda Waller is great. I, I like Deadshot. Uh, I like the way Captain Boomerang's written. Also, like, uh, later on, again, I haven't mentioned this in my podcast yet because he hasn't shown up, but Dr. Light shows up. Oh, yeah. And I, I, like, I like what he does with uh, Dr. Light. Before that, he was kind of like a one-notes character that so could beat on. Uh, he joins the Suicide Squad, and uh, John Oster actually gives him a little depth and actually makes him someone that you actually, while well, maybe you don't care about him, you actually tend to uh, see him as an actual person. Mm-hmm. And then again, as we've mentioned, Bronze Tiger is a really cool character. Vixen shows up later on.
0: Yeah, Bronze Tiger is—he's always been one of my favorites. But a lot of it is just aesthetically. I like the look of the character. I like the design, even without the mask. I actually—I think I prefer when you can just see Ben's face instead of the tiger mask.
1: Oh, yeah. No, um, I much prefer yeah. the the maskless. Yeah.
0: But, like, you know, like from – like, I go back. Like, the first time I saw him in that uh, that Batman story, I really liked him. So he was always – I liked him when I started reading Suicide Squad. But at least in the issues that I'd read, like, the first year or so, right? He I don't think he had as much to do. He, he didn't really get as many – of the the glamorous scenes. I I definitely think Ostrander had a, had more fun writing Deadshot and Captain Boomerang and Amanda Waller. Definitely. Um, They were, they were the colorful characters, whereas Bronze Tiger and Rick Flagg, they were the straight men that you needed to kind of, to, to accentuate everybody else's crazy. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. And
1: uh, Suicide Squad is actually, I think my first experience with Bronze Tiger. Uh, I've seen some other things since then, but yeah, that's where I first found the Bronze Tiger and, so I, I'm not familiar with him from back in his uh, League of Assassin days and with Batman and all that, so
0: yeah, most of his appearances were in like Richard Dragon, and i haven't read oh, any okay. of those. Yeah. Um, I just knew that he was sort of like and that was, was basically that was just a kung Fu book and he was a <laughs> part sidekick and then maybe sidekick turned villain i don't remember I haven't read any of those um, favorites like story arcs, favorites you know experiences with the book. Uh,
1: why I definitely recommend uh, checking out that first trade paperback. In fact, I think it's the only trade paperback they had for this series, mm-hmm. uh, Trial by Fire, which reprints – if I'm not first mistaken, I think it's the first six issues and the, this *Secret Origins issue. Uh, it sets up the team. It lets you know what you're in for after the Legends, of course. So I did like him in Legends. I recommend Legends. That was a great story with them in it, which introduced them. Uh, Also like uh, around issue – I think it was issue 52 was a great – it's one I'm thinking of. It's the death and life and death and life of Dr. Light. If you haven't read that one there, uh, again, I don't want to spoil anything, but that was a really great issue focusing on Dr. Light and basically kind of telling how he became Dr. Light and dealing with him. But almost any issue you pick up of uh, Suicide Squad, it's a good issue.
0: Well, I know if any of our listeners, if they get digital comics, I think Comixology has the entire run, 66 oh, okay. issues.
1: Okay, there you go. Yeah, so yeah, it was 66 issues, and then there was a, a 67th issue that came out during the uh,
0: – Yeah, it was Blackest Black Night. Black it was when they, they, they did their dead issues. They brought back like, yeah. a bunch of canceled series for one more issue.
1: Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, I definitely recommend – yeah, if you're, if you're on Cosmicology or one of those where you can pick up these uh, titles there. And I'm sure if you look at your uh, local comic shop back-issue bins, I'm sure you pick them up there for, well, I would say you probably pick them up for not very much money. But with the movie on the horizon, uh, those comics may start coming up in price.
0: Mm-hmm. True.
1: But uh, no, I definitely recommend picking up almost any issue from their series is a good issue.
0: Any other thoughts about the Suicide Squad? Uh, no, I think that pretty much sums it up. I mean,
1: I can't go by how much I enjoy the artwork and I, I love... Honestly, I'm not getting paid by John Oshender. I, I don't, I'm don't. i not related to him, but I just love <laughs> – I, I love his writing in this book. It's just very, very good writing.
0: Yeah. It's one of the more enjoyable issues of the series so far because some of them have, are a little bit inconsistent. But I, I really had a good time with this origin story. Oh, good. All right, Aaron, where can people find you online?
1: Uh, well, I can be found hanging on street corners occasionally. No, sorry. Uh, <laughs> actually, I can be found at my website of headspeaks.com. And from there, I've got links to my, uh, both my podcasts. You can also find them on iTunes and Stitcher. I've got Head Speaks, where I talk about uh, comics, movies, anything that interests me, anything that annoys me. Uh, just whatever I feel like talking about for the day. And then I have my Task Force X podcast, where I review John Ossinger's Suicide Squad. And eventually, I'm going to get to Paul Kuppenberg's Checkmate Comics. I'm going to review them in order. And I was basically reviewing all of their appearances then in the late 80s, early 90s. And I'm currently working on paying together a G.I. Joe podcast. So, and again, once I get that going here, hopefully next month or two, that will be up on uh, iTunes, Stitcher, uh, and also my website, HeadSpeaks.com. And, again, I'm on f- Facebook. I have pages on both for t- uh, HeadSpeaks and Task Force X on Facebook. I'm on Google+, but I don't really do a whole lot on Google+. That's why I think, oh, let me check on that real quick. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, the best way to contact me you get a hold of me at headspeaks dot com, and or check I say check out my website, check me on Facebook, uh, and that's where I'm hanging out usually.
0: All right, well, thank you very much for being part of the Secret Origins podcast. Um, oh, thanks for having me, Ryan. Yeah, I love talking to you, and I'm sure that we'll get you back in the future on one of these episodes. Oh, anytime. little bit of a correction or amendment to the end there, the Suicide Squad trade paperback Volume 1 collects issues 1 through 8 and this secret origin story. Since Aaron and I recorded this session, which was back in mid-July, DC has announced they are releasing second and third volumes next year before the movie comes out. In total, these should collect the first 22 issues of the series, I think, plus an issue of Justice League International that was part of a crossover. I gotta say, it feels a little weird to be starting the listener feedback section less than an hour into the episode, especially after the last couple were so long and it seemed like that would be the trend. It felt like we forgot something, and then I remembered that Aaron and I did speak for another 45 minutes, specifically talking about the trailer for the Suicide Squad movie that came out of San Diego Comic-Con. We recorded that for his show, and you can hear that on episode 12 of the Task Force X podcast. Okay. Twitter favorites and retweets came from Aquaman Shrine, Diablo Frank, Dr. G, Nerdologist, Firestorm Fan, Greg Arugio, The Hammer Strikes, Illegal Machine, Kyle Benning, Nathaniel Wayne, Paul Scavido, Siskoid, Tom Paneris, and Trekker Talk. Gene Hendricks gave the Secret Origins podcast a shout-out over at the Hammer Strikes blog. New Facebook likes and shares came from Anthony Durso, Clinton Robson, Chris Burns, Chris Franklin, Earth Destruction Directive, Gotham Shiorin, Jean Hendricks, G.I. Joe, a real American headcast, Gord Tolton, Greg Russo, Greg Barr, The Hammer Strikes, Head Speaks, Igor Glushkin, Josh Hale, Keith G. Baker, Kevin Barrett, Richard Field, Ruth Sutherland, Shag, Sean Merrick, Sean Myers, Siskoid, Steve J. Rogers, Van Z, and um, my mom. Starting with the Facebook comments, Richard Field said, Loved the podcast, even Johnny Thunder. I can't wait for Plastic Man and Flash down the road. Keep up the great work. I was always a Marvel fan, but I'm slowly converting. Anthony Durso said, Listen to this episode today at work. It ran so long I had to bump listening to the Lonely Hearts Romance Comics podcast to another day. It was worth it, though. The whip sound effects and the intro to Johnny Thunder were hysterical. You know, Siskoid's Lonely Hearts podcast is great, but you absolutely made the right decision to listen to my show first. And I'm glad you enjoyed the extra production flourishes that went into this episode, such as the Whip sound effects and the Johnny Thunder prelude. These were a lot of work to put together, but they were a whole lot of fun and ultimately worth it, I think. Anthony also said, This seems to be a weird period for secret origins. A lot of mediocre, lackluster origins, especially the Golden Agers. At the time these issues came out, it was a struggle for me to maintain interest every month. As much as I admire Roy Thomas's tenacity in trying to present all of the origins of the Golden Age heroes in semi chronological order, I think that direction is what killed it for me. I much prefer the seat of the pan style of editor Mark Wade, where you couldn't predict what you'd get from month to month. Stay tuned, Anthony. We'll be getting to those issues in a few weeks, or months, or whenever. Rob Kelly from the Aquaman Shrine and the Fire and Water podcast said this was the best period episode period ever period, even better than the one he was on. While I, as the creator, can't pick favorites and say this episode was the best, it was the most time-consuming and demanded the most work and effort to produce since episode one. Uh, Rob also said, Glad to hear Tom Paneris mention Brave and the Bold 182. It is one of the best Batman and Robin stories ever, in how it reflects on Batman's relationship with his own Robin. Plus, Jim Aparo. Rob said he laughed every time he heard the whip sound cue. (laughs) Now I wish that Frau Blücher from Young Frankenstein had somehow gotten an origin in the series. That was totally my inspiration for the Thundercrack sound effect every time someone says Shazam, and I continued it whenever we said the name of the whip, though I added the special musical whip sound effect whenever the character needed some special emphasis. He also said, Maybe I'm crazy, but I've always thought the whip... Really had a lot of potential and could have really been cool if a modern writer-artist combo had taken him on. Whips are inherently cool, thanks Indy, and they make a great visual. Imagine a whip (coughs) mini drawn by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praised be his name. Uh, That reminds me, over on Twitter, Dr. G, Man of Nerdology, posted the cover to Astro City issue 16, uh, painted by Alex Ross. It depicts a hero named El Hombre, similar to Zorro or the Whip, and yes, of course, he's got a whip and looks awesome. Uh, Check out Dr. G's Pulp to Pixel podcast, where he covers those Astro City comics. Uh, But getting back to Rob's comment... I think the origin certainly showed the whip has cool potential, and Paul's idea for presenting him as this comedic master of machismo is one way you could take the character. Uh, But you could also do a serious interpretation, too. The only question is, do you update him? Do you bring him into the 21st century city? Do you swap the horse for a motorcycle? Or do you leave him in the Southwest and embrace him as a legacy hero, borrowing the tropes of a century-old period? Either way, if you're putting J-L-G-L-P-B-H-N on the character, I'm reading every issue. Rob also said I should have used the Lionel Richie song Say You, Say Me as the musical cue for Johnny Thunder. Jeff R. made the same suggestion over on the WordPress page, and a lot of people liked that. The Richie song is great, and it has the phrase... But the Tommy James song feels a little more silly to me, a lot less serious, and tonally it seemed to fit the story and character. Very often, that's the connection I'm making between character and song. How does it make me feel? All this is to say that maybe you'll hear Radiohead's Creep when I cover issue 18, but maybe not. Uh, The Irredeemable Shag, who you know best as a guest on the Batgirl to Oracle podcast, said, Great episode, folks. Loved the Nightwing coverage. Much prefer his pre-crisis evolution to Nightwing as opposed to being fired. Tom did an outstanding job and was very informative. The whip sound effects had me in stitches. Hilarious gag. Never let it end. I now love this character, too. Great coverage, Paul. Johnny, mother... Thunder. Waste of paper. At least Nathaniel probably didn't piss off anyone this time. In all seriousness, great job with a rough character and origin. Nathaniel redeemed. Speaking of Johnny Motherfucking Thunder, Gord Tolton said, I wonder what was in the rationale behind Johnny Thunder's creation. Was this a DC-answered Captain Marvel utilizing the Thunderbolt as a Shazam-like mystical being and hoping to put it on a regular Mystery Joe in a suit a la Sandman? Considering that Roy Thomas did a female, seemingly unrelated Johnny Thunder in the 1980s as a noirish detective, maybe he felt the same way and just wanted to get it right. Or did someone see some humor in the concept that John Wentworth just didn't have the talent to deal with? Even Gardner Fox seemed unclear what to do with him in the early JSA stories. There might be an untold story in why he was brought into the group, with the 1941 society recognizing the potential for trouble that existed with this guy and needing to keep an eye on him. All in all, this wasn't a bad story, but maybe just that slim addition might have salvaged the character for future use. Lots of good ideas and speculation in there, Gord. Uh, I don't think Johnny Thunder would have been created as a response to Captain Marvel, because Johnny actually predates the big red cheese by a couple weeks in publication. When I was researching the Shazam origin for Episode 3, I found that the publishers were originally going to call Wiz Comics Flash Comics, but All-American beat them to the copyright. And Captain Marvel was going to be called Captain Thunder at first, but that name was also taken by a number of other Golden Age characters. Uh, from everything I've seen, Johnny Thunder was never supposed to be a serious, noirish character. He was supposed to be a dumbass whose magic genie saved him from death every month. How and why he got thrown in with the Justice Society, I have no idea, but that would be interesting behind-the-scenes story. Over on the WordPress page, where the fun never ends, going back to episode 12 for a minute, Paul Hicks from the Waiting for Doom podcast said, "'Loved hearing Doug talk about Doom Patrol with their connection to the Challengers. Doug sure does talk good about Doom Patrol. May have to get him to do it somewhere else sometime.'" Doug, I think that's an offer to appear on Waiting for Doom, which is a great podcast. They gave me a shout-out a couple of episodes ago when they were talking about the Doom Patrol's origin that I will get to in a couple of weeks. Seriously, if you've been a fan of Hey Kids Comics, hosted by Andy and Michael Leyland, and you need a new fix of British guys talking comics when that show ends next month, check out Waiting for Doom by Paul and Mike. Okay, on to the last episode. Since there was so much feedback, because the show was so long, because they selfishly put three stories in the book, I'm going to break up this feedback section a little differently. Instead of separating the comments by author, I'm going to separate them by character, starting with Nightwing, slash Robin, slash Dick Grayson, and before I even get into the story-specific comments, it became pretty apparent that I've led some sheltered life because I've never seen a circus in anything other than movies or TV. I thought they were quaint and would make about as much sense in a modern superhero origin as a rotary bat phone. But several people were quick to respond that circuses are still around. They still travel, even Cirque du Soleil is not a fixed Vegas act. Circuses do come around to people's towns. And the idea is even less incredulous if we accept all of the other factoids about Gotham City and the fictional American landscape of the DC Universe, as Siskoid brought up. So I guess the idea of Dick Grayson growing up as a circus performer is not in and of itself impossible to believe. At least, no more impossible than the notion of Batman employing a ten-year-old kid in his war on crime. Okay, Ange from the Supergirl blog said he would have been quite happy if Nightwing's origin did not include the framing story on Tamaran. It really cements the moment in time this is being told. It ends up feeling dated as a result. Plus, Jericho. That's like a turd in the punch bowl. While this is a Larson penciled issue, the DiCarlo effect on inks is obvious. I think that may be why, at times, it feels like Perez. DiCarlo inked Perez and brought his aesthetics to those pages, too. I think everybody agreed the pencils on the Nightwing story don't look like the Eric Larson we know today, and that's all down to the heavy hand of DiCarlo's inks. Chris Franklin from the Supermates podcast said, Dick has always been one of my favorite comic characters, with him and Batman himself volleying for that position over the decades. When Dick quit the Robin role pre-crisis, it was a big deal and rocked my little nine-year-old world. I immediately took to his Nightwing persona and costume. People pick on it, but it works in both his circus roots with his dead man-like collar, Batman's colors, and Dick's own more swashbuckly attitude." That is something that Tom and I didn't really get into, but I like the Nightwing costume that George Perez designed. Well, sort of. I like the idea more than the design itself. I think the color scheme is cool, and it's almost an inversion of Batman's pattern, with the light bluish gray for the gloves, the boots, the waist area, and the dark blue on the rest of the body and the pants. Very much the negative effect of Batman's color scheme. I also like the yellow accent, I just hate how many little lines Perez included, like those are supposed to be feathers or something. It just comes off as busy, and superhero costumes should be simple. The collar and the open chest I'm fine with as long as they're not too excessive. I wish there was something else going on in the center torso area. He needed a symbol, an icon, even if it was just a letter or something. And that weird half-ass symbol that they gave him in the 90s was just stupid. It was like the unfolded Mad Magazine version of the bat symbol. It looked unfinished. Uh, Anyway, back to Chris's comment... This is Dick two seconds before Max Allen Collins's god-awful handling of the Bat books makes him a lame duck in those titles for years to come. I can't stand that storyline, especially Batman firing Dick and then taking in an inexperienced juvie to replace him. I preferred the amicable split that Doug Munch, Don Newton, Wolfman, and Perez gave us. As Tom said, Dick and Bruce already had their slow-burn fallout, which resolved itself right before Dick retired as Robin in that new Teen Titans Batman and the Outsiders crossover, and then at Donna's wedding. Wolfman has gone on record saying having Corey Mary Karras was a mistake that fans never forgave him for. I think much of this Titans era is a mistake. And Tom pointed out that Wolfman was in his infamous writer's block phase here. I think the origin story is handled well, although it's set during a particularly weak time in the Titans title. And Chris seconded my recommendation for the Robin-centric story The Gauntlet. And Paul Hicks from the aforementioned Doom Patrol podcast Waiting for Doom also praised The Gauntlet. Siskoid, from the Lonely Hearts podcast and Siskoid's blog of geekery, talked about his first exposure to Dick Grayson, the 60s TV show, Casey Kasem's Super Friends Robin, and the Mego doll. By the time I caught up with him in the comics, he was already too old to still wear the suit and name. And while I accepted him as Nightwing in the Titans, I always thought the disco costume was largely ridiculous. It was with his own series and the simplification of that costume that really made him one of my favorite characters, on and off. See... I think the 2000s-era Nightwing costume pre-Flashpoint was too simple. The black with the blue piping, I think that made him more like a second-rate daredevil because of the almost monochrome costume. I think Dick Grayson can and should be a little bit more showy than that. Siskoid continues, my favorite Robin was Tim Drake, no question. It's really about when I started to get into Batman comics, but one Robin I'm slowly but surely getting into is the Golden Age version as represented in his solo adventures in Star Spangled Comics. Tim was the first to get a solo series called Robin, but Dick had his own solo strip long before. Jeff Nettleton talked about how he first met Robin through the cartoons, even Sesame Street, and the evolution in Batman Family and New Teen Titans, and he said, This origin is okay, though it feels a bit too brief. Also not keen on Jericho's presence or the setting, but it's tolerable. Quite frankly, Dick Grayson deserved his own issue for the origin, or a dual issue of Earth-1 and Earth-2 Robin. Though this is post-crisis, the Earth-2 Robin had a slightly different career, which is why a dual issue would have been more satisfying. I kind of prefer the Batman Year 3 take on the Flying Graysons, with their performing costumes bearing a resemblance to the later Robin costume. It gave a motivation for why Batman chose that design for Robin. There was a previous story about it being a costume that young Bruce Wayne wore, but the Year 3 retcon made a lot more sense. Tim Wallace from the Blue Beetle blog Court Industry said, True story, I almost ran away to join a circus in college. Not only do I blog, but I also juggle and have taken both clowning and magic classes. Sadly, the communal lifestyle offered by the traveling circus that visited my college campus just wasn't for me. But yes, Ringling, Clyde Beatty, Cole Brothers, Big Apple, and Universal Circuses are all still active as far as I know, and there may be more. You know, folks, I was already planning to schedule Tim Wallace's return appearance on this podcast. Finding out he almost ran away with the circus was the ultimate deal sealer. Martin Gray from the United Kingdom and the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl left a book-length comment. Uh, I'm going to try and hit some of the highlights. All that tiresome Titans tosh in this framing sequence kill me now. Or better still, kill Jericho and all those Tamarannan and Ding Dongs. I cannot bear those smug gits. Why on earth waste pages, shilling for a story in another mag, Secret Origins should be its own thing, with stories that stand the test of time in excess of two months. You'd think that, Martin, but how many times did Roy Thomas use this book as a vehicle for All-Star Squadron, Infinity Incorporated, or Young All-Stars? Maybe Dan Mishkin thought his story was supposed to be nothing more than a prop for another comic. I mean, why else tell the origins again? Anyway, back to Martin's comment. I had no problem with the original origin of Jason Todd. Sure, it was a copy of Dick's, but again, comics. We already knew, courtesy of The Phantom Stranger, that a parallel world birthed a Batman every 20 years. Who's to say the universe didn't occasionally throw up spare heroes on individual worlds? As regards the realism of two Robins with the same origin, if we're going to invoke realism, we'd not have any Robins at all. There is no way in the world Batman could be justified taking a young boy into situations with guns and gangsters. As it is, we are basking in Robins. The extended sequence detailing the origin of Jason across Batman in Detective Comics by Jerry Ordway, Don Newton, and Friends is one of my favorite Batman stories. (laughs) Martin spells favorite with a U. That's adorable. And it gave us Killer Croc, all wiped out in favor of a Dick Tracy knockoff. I did like Jason's original costume when he wanted to go by Blue Jay 2 and the ginger hair. Dyeing the hair wasn't to make him more like Dick, it was to prevent villains just wishing to shoot him in the bumps. Uh, Skipping ahead a little... I never really got the motivation for Dick changing his hero name as an adult. I've been known to go from shorts to long trousers without altering my moniker. It's not like he'd originally stepped into a legacy role. I'm not counting the old story in which boy Bruce was a Robin. Robin was Dick. Jason could have been Blue Jay, and Tim, I don't know, Dark Drake. Here, I think, is the ultimate conundrum. And I brought this question up to Tom, but I failed to answer it myself or give my own opinion. Dick Grayson is Robin, but Robin is Batman's sidekick. If Dick is allowed to grow up, he should take the Robin moniker with him, but do we really want Batman and Blue Jay? Batman and Blue Bird? Those don't sound right, not to me. So we're left in this suspended state where Robin can never grow up. I think that's what DC Editorial was faced with. And that's why the role has devolved over the last three decades from something that is, or was, I would argue, DC's third most recognizable character to something we jokingly call an internship these days. And Martin and Chris Franklin kind of talked about my statement that the post-crisis Jason Todd was retconned to be a brat in order to justify killing him. Neither Martin nor Chris buy into that theory. They just think his death was brought about because of careless writing by Jim Starlin and Max Allen Collins. Diablo Frank from the Marvel Superheroes podcast, Diana Prince Wonder Woman, the Idol Head of Diablo, and the Power of the Atom podcast said... The Powers That Be should have taken Nightwing away from Marv Wolfman when he refused to let an immensely popular character with half a century of continuous publishing have a solo series. I guess Marv was too much of a golden boy, and DC was still holding onto Marvel expatriates through their writer-editor deals. But Wolfman ran the Titans aground across five years of mediocrity at a time when the Baxter series was already eroding the readership at an alarming rate. Nightwing was the most unforgivable casualty, though, since his misuse from nearly the inception of the rebranding allowed the character to be reclaimed and sidelined by the Batman family to this day. Dick Grayson was one of the most popular and important heroes in comic book history, who has now regressed to a peripheral player. You know, everybody talks about how the crisis ruined the history of Donna Troy, but Wonder Woman herself was royally screwed over by Perez, taking the same hard road as Hawkworld by having her story start now instead of five years ago. I feel like Perez has fairy glamour that makes people forget stuff like that in Nightwing's Disco Elvis look, as Art T-Bear called it. This story was okay, but cheesy throughout, which is punctuated by the dang monkey bird at the end. I think Donna Troy's continuity was screwed up from birth, uh, but I agree that the Perez reboot of Wonder Woman was unnecessarily problematic. It should have been a four-to-six issue origin set in the past like Man of Steel or Batman Year One. Then return to the current timeline so you could have her as a founding member of the Justice League. Okay, on to feedback for The Whip. Kyle Benning from King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun, and the third part of G.I. Joe, A Real American Headcast team with Aaron Moss and me. Kyle said, I absolutely love this story and I love the concept Paul had to bring him back. That would be so freaking hilarious. Martin Gray said, Wow, the world was really waiting for a secret origin of the whip. Well done to you lads for keeping my interest. Ange said, At first I thought Gustavich was channeling Gene Colan, but I think in the end it was only the use of shadow so effectively that reminded me of Colan. Whereas Frank said Gustavich was clearly trying to channel Colan. Ange continued, This guy seems like a fun hero and I wouldn't mind reading more of his adventures. I especially liked Paul's thoughts of a modern comic. Siskoid said, I love the whip, but seeing as he appeared very little, even in All-Star Squadron, basically a cameo towards the end, I seem to remember, this one stands out as one of those why-him decisions Secret Origins frequently made. Siskoid also did a full write-up of the whip on his blog of Geekery that you can check out. Chris Franklin said, Al Castigo's coverage was a lot of fun, love the sound effect, and I'd put Paul's whip comic in my poll file for sure. I'm a big Mark Zorro as opposed to Mark of Zorro, so there has always been a bit of an appeal to this character for me. My only other real memory of the character outside of this story and his Who's Who entry, also drawn by Gustavich, I believe, was in one panel of All-Star Squadron. Someone, I actually believe it's Johnny Thunder, asks the whip why he doesn't have a Spanish accent like he did in the newsreel footage about him. The whip answers that was an early part of his disguise that he'd dropped. This is another example of Rascally Roy fixing a problem no one else ever had, why the whip's dialogue changed at some point. Frank said, I like how Cavalier Rodrigo Gaynor was about becoming a masked vigilante and how loose the Thomases were with his race retcon and the old West predecessor. It's loads easier to forgive lapses in logic and motivation for a breezy continuity light nine pager than their usual slogs. It reflects the golden age far more than captions telling me where FDR was taking a dump at seven thirty-four AM on march seventh, nineteen thirty nine. And on to the Johnny Thunder feedback. Siskoid said, Hilarious lead-in, Ryan, but all kidding aside, I would have loved to do Johnny Thunder. I love Golden Age characters, and I love Goofy characters. Thankfully, Nathaniel gets it. Are there more characters with magic words he can collaborate on later? Uh, Good question, Siskoid. Nathaniel missed out on the Blue Beetle origin, so he didn't get to shout Kaji-da. I really don't think we need any more magic word heroes, though. I, for one, do not want to hear what Dr. Light shouts out before he attacks. Speaking of the intro and the goofy characters, back on the Facebook page, Van Z had said he would have been all over this origin, and he recommends the series JSA Strange Adventures. Jeff Nettleton said he never cared for Johnny Thunder and this origin didn't change that. There's a lot you could do to improve things, then run with the character in future stories, but that isn't Roy. He was too slavish to the originals. Yeah, he treats it as goofy, but I think that would have been more effective with the Ma Hunkle Red Tornado. I don't mind goofy characters like Johnny Thunder or Ma Hunkle. Heck, I cut my teeth on Disney's Super Goof. I just think you have to let them live in their own world. I also think that if you're going to go goofy, go for broke. That's what made things Like Plastic Man, so great. And Jeff went on to describe the difference in how Ma Hunkel was used for comedic effect, but really only appeared as a cameo with the Justice Society, mostly staying in her own little universe, as opposed to Johnny Thunder appearing regularly in adventure stories where he probably didn't belong. Martin Gray said he's also a fan of Johnny Thunder and would add him to the roster on any Earth 2 team he's putting together based on the power that the Thunderbolt brings to the table. Johnny just needs a Wrangler to keep him out of trouble. Kyle said, This story serves as the single greatest Johnny Thunder story of all time. Roy did what no other writer could and made this dumbass halfway interesting. I totally agree with both of your thoughts on this story and why it works. I was dreading reading the story and was very pleasantly surprised. I think, had they made Johnny more innocent and a little younger, like Billy Batson, than an ignorant dumbass in his 20s, like Johnny was typically portrayed, then the character could have been much more well regarded, instead of being looked at like a more annoying snapper car genie premise is cool, it's just too bad the person wielding that awesome power has to have the same IQ as Honey Boo Boo. You guys are totally right, Johnny as portrayed has no business being in the team book unless it's a team consisting of Ma Hunkel, Snapper Car, Johnny Thunder, and Mr Bean. In terms of making the wielder of the genie younger and more serious, I think that describes Jakim Thunder from the JSA series that came about later on. And then Chris Franklin complained that I don't give him credit on the episode, despite the fact that we could hear him laughing. It's like Hollywood rules, Chris. You need actual lines to get credit. Chris said... Although my better half wanted her money back, plus some, I have to say I kinda agree with Nathaniel in that this story as presented works better than Captain Marvel's origin. This take establishes the craziness right off the bat, so one can just roll with it. It's still completely ridiculous, but as its own animal, it works. I never thought of Johnny as the JSA's Jar Jar, but it's an apt comparison. And finally, Greg Argujo gone and done a little homework for the show and broke the first 13 issues of Secret Origins down into a couple of familiar categories. In the first 13 issues, there have been 24 origins. To the surprise of no one, Roy Thomas wrote the most 12 origins. However, Dan Mishkin, Mike W Barr and Paul Levitz each wrote 2 origins. Ernie Colon, George Tuska and Tom Grinberg each penciled 2 origins. Mike Gustavich inked three origins, Pablo Marcus and Tony DeZuniga each did two, Carl Gafford colored 15 origins, David Cody Weiss lettered eight origins, there was one female penciler, Mary Wilshire, one female writer, Danette Thomas, one female inker, Mary Wilshire again, three female colorists, Adrienne Roy, Mary Dizaniga, and Carrie Spiegel, three stories involving Batman characters, Golden Age Batman, Halo, and Nightwing, Four stories featuring female characters, Halo, Power Girl, Fury, Shadow Lass. Two Origins featured new characters to the DCU, Fury, and Blue Beetle. Three Infinity Incorporated tie ins. Twelve stories involved Golden Age characters, although Fury's inclusion there is debatable. And considering the New Teen Titans, Legion of Superheroes, and maybe The Outsiders being the more popular books at the time, they each only have one character featured in an Origin Nightwing, Shadow Lass, and Halo awesome data collection, Greg. That's so cool. Now figure out a way I can put it to some sort of use. Anyway, that is all for this episode. Once again, big thanks to Aaron Head Moss for appearing on the show. Feedback can be left at secretoriginspodcast.wordpress.com or the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash secretoriginspodcast. You can find me on Twitter at RyanDaily or at BlackCanaryFan or the username Count Truncula. You can send feedback to the show via email at blackcanaryfan at gmail.com, and please let me know if the feedback is private and you don't want it read on a future episode. The Secret Origins podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics. The views expressed on the show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and are believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening.
2: You kill your heroes and fight, fight, baby
0: When I get to the Johnny Thunder and Thunderbolt origin, I was just gonna like ask for people to just like if they had any thoughts, and it could just be like funny or fun to say about the character.
1: Well, unlike a lot of people, I don't hate him. I don't really have. He's not one of my favorites. (laughs) (laughs) I I just—he's very. I don't dislike. I mean, just he's there. (laughs) Okay. I don't have any love for him, and I don't want him to die in a fire, but. I enjoy seeing him show up just because I know he was a member of the Justice Society. Mm-hmm. But yeah, if I if I didn't see him, I, I wouldn't miss him. <laughs> okay.
0: right. You know, not everybody hates you. Some people have nice things to say. I don't want him to die in a fire. That'll be the nicest thing that somebody says.